0: said back to him. So let's just continue in um, an attitude of worship through prayer before I read Judges chapter 3 and for Alan comes to speak to us. I'm going to pray through just Ephesians chapter 1 because at the minute things are going seemingly pretty crazy in the world. You have the issues with Russia, NATO. When you look at the news, you can't not think about what is going to happen here. And yet there's a temptation as Christians to think what on earth is going on, but we know that our theology, what we believe, is not based upon what we see, but what we read. And the scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 1, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, Jesus Christ is enthroned with all other names under his authority. So let's come to that person, Jesus Christ, and pray to him. Father, we want to acknowledge the reality and the truth of the power of your name. And I ask, Father, that you would help have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we would see the truth in our being, in our hearts, that you have been raised from the dead and that you are seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Father, you have more power than Vladimir Putin, Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, and every other world leader put together. Your name and your dominion authority is higher than theirs, not only in this age, but in the age to come. You rule supreme over all history, and it is racing towards you. You are putting all things under your feet and you are giving the head, you are the head of the church, and we will be handed to you by the Father on that resurrection day. Father, great is your faithfulness to do that for your own glory and for our joy. I pray that these truths would percolate down into our hearts throughout the week. And whether we're watching the news, stressed out by what's happening in world geopolitical affairs or COVID, or even in our own personal circumstances, should it be finance? Should it be relational issues? Should it be health? Lord, I pray that we would experience the reality of these truths in our lives and that we would take joy in your faithfulness to us. Father, bring hope where hope is needed. Bring comfort where comfort is needed. Bring challenge and rebuke where that is needed also. But Father, for this body, I pray that we would be a people who rest in you and who are aware of your great faithfulness. I'd like to pray Psalm 125 as a blessing over the body. Family, may the Lord increase your confidence in Him. May each of you be like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, May the Lord surround each of you both now and forever for his glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in Judges. Alan is continuing his series. Really enjoyed the last one, Alan, so we look forward to what God's going to say to us um, through this character, Ophniel. Judges chapter 3 and verses 7 to 11 either following your bibles or on the screen and the people of israel did what was evil in the sight of the lord they forgot the lord their god and served the baals and the asherah therefore the anger of the lord was kindled against israel and he sold them into the hand of Cush and rishathiam king of mesopotamia and the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim 8 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cush and Reshaphim. So the the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This is God's word. Over to you, Alan.
1: good morning. And thanks to Samuel for reading that. I'm especially glad that he was able to read the name of that king. Um, that's the problem with some of these, some of these names in, in the book of Judges. If you have your Bible still in front of you, I want to read it actually a little bit further as well. Um, and uh, we're going to think about Othniel this morning, whose story has just been told very, very briefly in those verses, uh, but we're also going to think about another character whose name is Ehud. And uh, so if you, if you have your Bible open, we'll just follow through from verse 12. Um, and uh, the story uh, continues like this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of palms That's the city of Jericho. Uh, the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, about 18 inches long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man after Ehud presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who'd carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Quite a lot of detail on that, isn't there? (laughs) Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he didn't open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not one escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land at peace for 80 years. This is God's word, and we trust that He will bless it to us as we think about it uh, for a little while this morning. Years ago, when I was uh, a lot younger than I am today, um, one of the titles of talks that you might have typically heard people uh, give at various Christian events, especially events. Uh, that were aimed at younger people um, would have been something along the lines of the man God uses. The man God uses. Uh, I was talking to my wife about this. I I asked her a little bit about it. And one of the things I said, well, was as a woman, how did that make you feel? And she said, well, I mean, we're going back 40 odd years now. Uh, Things were a bit different. And uh, she said, well, we just kind of accepted that that's the way it was. And she recalls one particular guy, and this, this was like his, not quite his party piece, but this was a, a talk that he was renowned for giving. The man God uses. He's now an elder in, in a church in, in Belfast and is uh, quite well known as, as a speaker and so on. If you look around uh, on the Internet, you'll find several books that actually have that same title. One of them was uh, written uh, originally in 1925 the man God uses but there's been others one or two others that have been written more recently now I've not read them uh, and I, I don't particularly recall uh, exact details of any of the talks that I may have heard along along that uh, that subject but but the basic idea of, of a talk like that the man God uses or the person God uses if we want to if we want to sort of uh, take it a little bit into the into our uh, more contemporary era, the, the, the basic idea is to encourage people to say, well, I want God to use my life. I want my life to count uh, for the purposes of God. I want Him to, to use me. I want to be able to serve Him. So what are the kind of things that I need to be cultivating as part of my devotion to God? That's a really good aim. And we do well, all of us would do well, to take very seriously the way the Bible addresses issues of character and the kind of people that we should be. We should be making it our aim to grow uh, increasingly to be more like Jesus, to to grow closer to God, to grow stronger in our relationship with Him. In the New Testament, Paul talks about living a life that is worthy of the calling that we have. God has called us with this um, amazing calling that we thought about a little bit last summer when we talked a bit about Ephesians chapter 1. Then He wants us not to live worthy in order that we earn it, but to live worthy in, in a way that displays the honor of the calling with which He has called us. But the reality, the man God uses, the person God uses, the reality is that God uses all kinds of people both in the Scripture and even today, and and all the times in between. And one of the things that you realize is that God uses, sometimes He delights to use, unlikely people. So, people who are weak, or who are outsiders, or the kind of people that you or I probably wouldn't recruit if we were working uh, as executive recruiters on behalf of God and trying to recruit people for His service. And one of the things about that is that if God uses unlikely people, then it draws attention to the fact that it's God who is at work rather than that there's something particularly special about the person that God uses. Treasures in jars of clay is the way that Paul describes it. And when we come to the book of Judges that we're thinking about over several weeks, over these few months, uh, when we're thinking about the book of Judges, we, we discover that the book of Judges has some surprises for us in terms of this question. For one thing, the man God uses, well, next week, God willing, we're going to be thinking about a woman that God used. Her name was Deborah. And Deborah was one of the judges. We're going to be thinking about her. So he doesn't just use men. He also, we'll see next week, uses another woman called Jael, uh, who seemed to be pretty skilled in using hammers and tent pegs. Not just to put tents up, but actually to hammer them through the heads of uh, oppressive uh, military rulers, which is what we're going to see. So if you thought that the, the reading today was a little bit graphic with a dagger getting stuck and embedded into the, the, uh, the stomach of a rather overweight gentleman. well you're going to discover that uh, there's a bit of a, there's a guy next week who, who's going to end up with a bit of a headache as he gets a tent peg driven through it. But we're also going to see that he uses as, as the series goes on, we're gonna see that he uses some other very odd people. A guy called Jephthah, who was an outsider, like an outlaw, effectively. And a guy called Samson, whom you've probably heard of, who really was a pretty wild individual. He uses all kinds of people, even what we might regard as unsuitable people. He uses Gideon. Gideon was a very fearful sort of individual needed lots of reassurance over and over. Now, the two people that we're gonna think about today are Othniel, Samuel has read to us the story of Othniel, and we're gonna think about Ehud. Now keep in mind, when we think of these people as judges, as you said a couple of weeks ago, these are not people with black robes on and and fancy wigs on, Uh, that's not what we're talking about. There was an element of that in in some of them, Um, but these are essentially deliverers, rescuers, local leaders whom God raised up at different times, at at times of crisis, in the absence of a unified leader over the whole of the, the nation of Israel, these were local leaders and God raised them up to deal with oppression that was, that was, that was being brought against them. So Othniel is the, is the first one that we're going to think about, and his story comes from chapter 3, verse 7, and, and actually the way his story works, and this would be really helpful if you have a Bible in front of you, um, if, the way his story works is that it sets out the basic pattern through which all of the cycles of the judges is gonna happen. Remember, there, there are about half a dozen major judges and another half dozen uh, minor judges. And, and there's this basic pattern that, that happens uh, throughout, throughout the book, and you can, you can trace it through the stories of the major judges. So, notice the first thing, the people do evil. Verse seven says that the people did evil. Uh, the second thing in verse seven again is an explanation of the kind of evil that the people did. Here it's specifically, Idol worship. They worship the Baals and the Asheriths. That's only repeated in one of the the further stories. Most of the other stories of the judges just says the people did evil, but here we're told it's it's idolatry. Then in verse 8, the third element of it is that God hands them over to their oppressors. In this story, it's the Mesopotamians. Other times it's Moab or it's the Canaanites uh, or it's Midian. Or it's the Philistines. The fourth element, when you get to verse nine, is that the people cry out. So in almost all of the stories—not in the story of Samson—but in almost all of the stories, the people cry out because of the misery that they're experiencing. And then in verse nine, the next element is that there's a deliverer. God gives them a deliverer. Verse eleven or verse, verse ten. Then the next bit is that there's deliverance, there's rescue that happens. Verse eleven. Something happens after the deliverance, it's positive, Um, uh, it's usually described in terms of the land having a period of rest. There's peace. The enemies have been dealt with, and now everybody can relax for a while, and sometimes it's uh, 40 years, sometimes it's 80 years, different periods of time uh, that that are associated with this time of rest. And then verse 12, which wasn't in the reading, but verse 12 leads us into the next bit. uh, It's what happened next. And what happens next is that in most of the stories, what's, what follows is that there's a time of renewed disobedience. So that's the cycle. Unfaithfulness to God, worshiping idols. God allows their enemies to rise up against them. The people cry out. There's a deliverer uh, who's, who's often described as being raised up by God. Deliverance happens to varying degrees. There's a time of rest and then they go back and they do the same thing all over again. And those are the cycles that happen. And in lots of ways, the story of Othniel is the basic pattern of that. And so as you see the other stories, you can compare them back to the story of Othniel. But there's another thing about the story of Othniel which I think is important. Because in some ways, Othniel is like the ideal judge. If you or I were right, we're, we're inventing this, these stories. Um, we would think, well, you know, we've got this terrible trouble that's going on. Um, we, need to, we need to have a hero character. Let's think of a guy who's a bit like a knight in shining armor who's gonna come riding into town and who's gonna sort the whole thing out. Let's, let's think of that, and Othniel is that kind of character. I want you to notice several things about him. Number one, the fact that the Lord raised him up. We're not told that he had a special call experience the way Gideon did. <clears throat> the way the parents of Samson did, but the Lord raised him up. And it's important for us to see that because this is the mercy of God. We talked about this last time, that you've got these cycles of rebellion, the people keep forgetting God, they keep turning to idols, there, there's all of this suffering that goes on, um, and, but God is faithful to them. God is merciful to them. And again and again and again, He gives them someone to rescue them. And I think the last time, a couple of weeks ago, we sang, that, we sang that wonderful song. You know, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So the Lord raises up this man, Othniel. The second thing I want you to notice about him is his pedigree. He has a very good pedigree. And I want you to notice a couple of things that we learn about him. First of all, we learn something about his family. Now you get a little bit about this in, jo- in, in the book of Joshua. You get something it's repeated to us in, in Judges chapter one. And what we discover about him is he was, the, he was the son of Kenaz. It's also referred to in chapter three. He was the son of Kenaz. Kenaz was the younger brother of Caleb. Now some of you remember Caleb. Uh, Caleb was uh, one of the spies along with Joshua. Remember Moses sent the spies uh, to go into, into Canaan. They were to just see what the place was like and, and sort of check it all out and so on. So uh, they come back and most of the spies, there were 12 of them all together, and 10 of them come back and they say, yeah, it's really wonderful. You know, it's an amazing territory, but there is no way on earth that we will ever be able to conquer it because, you know, the people are like giants and we're just like grasshoppers. And there were two guys who said, well, hey, hang on a minute. If God is in this, we can take this place. One of them was Joshua, who becomes Moses' successor. And the other is Caleb. And Caleb pops up again in the story, in the book of Joshua, when he's 85 years old, so 40 40 to 45 years after the spying incident, he pops up again with Joshua and he says, okay, look, I'm 85, but I'm just as strong now as I was then. He says, I want, to, I want to take my inheritance. Give me the hill country. He's as strong as he was all those years previously. And the text says that he followed the Lord fully. He wholly followed the Lord. It's one of those characters, not an awful lot mentioned about him, but what's mentioned about him is really quite remarkable. I mean, think of it. 85, and he's just as strong as as he was at 40, you know? That's why some of you get up at half past six in the morning and you go for your morning jog, isn't it? You know, because so, you want to try to be sure that by the time you get to 85, which seems a long way away, but it'll come faster than you think. Uh, and I'm, I'm not there yet, by the way, just in case you're, you're wondering. Um, but but it will it will come, uh, you know, if God spares you to that, to that time. Um, but you, you want to do what you can so that you're still pretty strong at 85. But a lot of people get to 85 and they're not anywhere near as strong. As they were when they were 40. I have a friend, a really one of uh, really good friend, who's a uh, he's now officially quote unquote retired. He's in his early 70s. Uh, he's I think, in my opinion, he's one of the finest Christian leaders in in Ireland that, uh, over, from over the past several decades. Um, and when he reached retirement age, so a few years ago he reached retirement age, uh, he was still he was still working. Um, and instead of thinking of it as retirement, he thought of it as something else. In fact, he got someone to design little stickers for him and print off these little stickers. And on the stickers it said "refired." So he wasn't retired; he was refired. And every time he met somebody who was over retire- who was at retirement age, he would give them one of these stickers just as a challenge to say, "You know, don't think of yourself as being refi- as retired. You're in retirement. It's refirement. You know, get get out there and do so- do something more." Uh, And that's what he has been like himself. Remarkable. Um, His strength still continues. And in the church that I used to work in in Switzerland when I went there 30 years ago, um, that that church was started by a retired Swiss missionary who'd worked with Amy Carmichael. You've heard of Amy Carmichael from County Down, from Malayal. And this man and his wife had worked with Amy Carmichael in India way back years and years ago. And 35 years ago, when he was now in his 70s, he had a vision to start a new church. That's the church that I went and pastored for 17 years. Those kind of Caleb characters who wholly follow the Lord and who in their later years are just as zealous and just as vigorous for God as they were when they were younger. Great ambition. Great examples for us to follow. Now, that man was the uncle of Othniel, but there was another connection between Othniel and Caleb. And this actually leads me to a second point, because this has not only got to do with his family background, it's also got to do with his own character. The way he became Caleb's son-in-law was really quite unusual. Now, uh, I am a father of two daughters, I have two sons-in-law. And I did not ask my sons-in-law to do what Caleb expected his son-in-law to do. Here was the deal for Caleb. He said, well, I've got this daughter, Axa. I think AXA was probably a fairly strong woman, a bit like her father, uh, had, had inherited some of his strength of character. And Caleb said, well, he said, tell you what, there's this city over here. Whoever can go and conquer this city, capture it, take possession of it. Do you know what? I'll let you marry Aksa, my daughter. In other words, Caleb wanted to make sure that the guy who married his daughter would be the same kind of guy that he was. The same sort of strength and uh, conquering uh, type of 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 a military leader. The same kind of faith and courage. And that's what Othniel was. You know, guys, Think about it for a moment, those of you who are married, you know would you be married to the person that you 're married to today if if her dad had expected you to go and capture a city in order to you know to, to, to be able to to, be able to marry to marry her there 's something reassuring isn 't there about knowing someone 's pedigree this is the kind of guy Othnia was was you know we, we, we see something about his family, his uncle, and we see something about his character that he was a bit of a even though he wasn't Caleb's son, he was quite like his father-in-law in some ways. And there's something reassuring about, about the pedigree. Now, there's, there's no guarantee that just because you have good pedigree means that everything will be fine with you. You'll not necessarily be like your father-in-law or like your own father or, you know, your mother, as, as, as the case may be. But I think in this case, knowing a little bit about his background, when Othniel appears and the Lord raises him up, we're saying, oh, well, he's going to be good, isn't he? Because look at the family he comes from. And actually, he is. If, anything, if, if he's going to be anything like Caleb, he's just what Israel needs at a time of crisis. Of course, I realize that, you know, having a pedigree can also be a bit of a burden, can't it? You know, everybody expects you to be just like your dad. Or everybody expects you, oh, I knew your mother. I knew your grandmother. You know, and you're not a quarter of the person that your grandmother, you know, that kind of thing, you know, a pedigree can be a little bit of a burden. Thankfully, it wasn't for Othniel, as far as we we know. But here's the third thing about him. The Spirit of the Lord was on him. And some of you think, wow, did the Spirit of the Lord, did he not just arrive at the day of Pentecost? No, he didn't. He's actually on the very opening pages of the Bible. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters at the time of creation. And he's active in various parts of the Old Testament, even before the book of Judges. Um, He's he's upon Joseph. Pharaoh recognizes him in in the life of Joseph. Um, He empowers a man called Bezalel, who was a craftsman in the building and construction of the tabernacle. He was on Moses, and and God took some of the spirit that was on Moses and, and shared it with some of the elders to spread the load of responsibility. And now here he comes upon Othniel. It's very clear that the Lord is at work through this man, and so there's no surprise, fourthly then, that he brings peace. In lots of ways, this is the model judge. If you want to do your The man God uses story, well, this is it, isn't it? So the Lord raised him up and he's from a good family and the spirit is on him and he's successful and he brings peace. You think, well, the book of Judges would be so much simpler if all of the judges were like that. You know, these noble people of good pedigree that God clearly raises up, that God clearly empowers and they get on with it and there are no complications. But let's have a look at the next one because we're gonna see that it a, gets a little bit different and it's gonna to continue to get quite a bit different as, as we move on. So the next one's name is Ehud. He appears in his story begins in verse 12. And in verse 12, you get this sense of deja vu because the people, you see, you see the pattern, the people again are unfaithful. Presumably it's again in the worship of idols. It's interesting the references that there are later in the story to uh, stone monuments, Id- Id- idols that were dotted about the various parts of the land near Jericho um, and, and, uh, and Gilgal, um, and presumably people were worshiping, worshiping these idols, and so presumably this is what's going on, and they fall under the considerable shadow of this man Eglon of Moab. He establishes an alliance with a couple of other uh, groups of people, and they defeat Israel and capture the city of Jericho. And, of course, that's ironic because think back. first. The first city, really, that, that, uh, that the Israelites captured when they went into the promised land was Jericho. You know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, walked around the walls again and again and again. The walls fall down. Do you know? And, and now they've lost it. And it's gone to the Moabites. And the mention of Moab is very interesting because there's a little story that comes just after the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Set in the same time as the book of Judges, it's the book of Ruth. And guess where Ruth comes from? She comes from Moab, one of the enemies of Israel. And for 18 years, the Israelites serve the Moabites, this king Eglon. 18 years, and eventually they cry out in their misery, and the Lord gives them Ehud. Now, notice a few things about him. First of all, notice he's from the tribe of Benjamin. I didn't comment on this in relation to Othniel. But Othniel had been from the tribe of Judah. That's the tribe that would eventually produce King David and Solomon and Jesus, the Messiah, would eventually come from the tribe of Judah. Benjamin would also produce a king. Guess which one? Saul, the first king of Israel. But you also need to know about Benjamin that one of the worst stories in the book of Judges, which occurs in the last few chapters of the book of Judges, one of the worst stories in the book of Judges is about the tribe of Benjamin. And in the last few chapters of the book of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin is almost extinguished from Israel. And a terrible story. And Benjamin basically survives just by the skin of its teeth. The tribe of Benjamin does not come out of the book of Judges terribly well, but that's the tribe that Ehud is from. He's not from Judah, he's from Benjamin. Notice the second thing about him, which is going to strike you as a little bit weird, but it becomes really significant in the story. He's left-handed. How many of you are left-handed? Put your left hand up if you're left-handed. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, that's probably not too far off the average. Uh, I think globally, I, I understand it's about 12% of the population uh, are left-handed. So there's five of you, What I'm not going to do You can work out the mathematics of that. You know, if there's about 40 people in the room, maybe you actually, you're maybe more left-handers than, than usual in, in the room. But well, Ehud was left-handed. Um, literally, the text says that he was limited or restrained in his right hand. And people are not entirely sure what that means. Some people say, well, maybe he had a disability in his right hand. I think probably that's not what's happening, but what maybe maybe was happening was a reference to the fact that he had deliberately had his right hand restricted, like maybe tied behind his back, so that he could develop the strength and the skill of his left hand. Um, I don't think any of you are old enough to remember I hope not well I don't think any of you are old enough to remember maybe one or two um, certainly in in, in in a previous era um, people in kids in, in school they if they tried to write with their left hand uh, they, they had their their left hand tied behind their backs or tied somewhere to so that they would be forced to write with their right hand it was kind of regarded as as weird and abnormal and could be linked to uh, issues of, of limitations in their intellectual development and so on. Uh, those, that kind of thing might have happened. So for Ehud, it may be that, that well, someone had tied his hand behind his right hand behind his back so that he would learn to fight with his left hand, and he really is left-handed. Interestingly, there are 700 left-handed warriors from the tribe of Benjamin who are mentioned in Judges chapter 20. And it says that they could, they could sling a stone at a hare, and, and that's H-A-I-R, not H-A-R-E, but it's they could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. And for those of you in your football, basically that's the opposite of someone who's a footballer uh, and the old saying that they couldn't hit a barn door with a banjo. They were the opposite of that. You know, they would sling a, they would sling a stone at a hair, and they were so accurate that they wouldn't miss it. Uh, that's them. They were, they were left-handed. Now, there's a great irony in the fact that, that this, this guy, Ehud, and the 700 others were left-handed because they were tri- from the tribe of Benjamin. And do you know what Benjamin means? You remember Benjamin was one of, he was one of the sons of, of Jacob. Do you know what Benjamin means? son of my right hand, son of my right hand. Now left-handers, you're just gonna have to bear with me for a moment here because I'm gonna have to say some things that you're maybe gonna find a little bit troubling. Um, In the Bible, the right hand is associated with strength and with blessing. When the patriarchs were blessing the next generation, the right hand was the hand that they put on the head of the child that they wanted to bless. It's also associated with, with strength. It's Exodus chapter 15 talks about how God's right hand has shattered the enemy. Psalm 20 talks about the saving might of the Lord's right hand. A Bible scholar called David Hay has said that in the ancient world, the right side was often identified with greatness, strength, divinity, goodness, the left side with that which was limited, weak, demonic, evil, or of little value. Sorry, I'm just saying what he, what he said. That's, that's how it was portrayed. That's how it was understood in the ancient world. And that's, you see, that's the kind of thing. And that's why um, 100 years or so ago, people would have tied up the left hands of left-handed children so that they would force them to use their right hand because of all the negative, all of the negative associations. King George VI, maybe, some of you maybe watched the movie, came out about 10 years ago, The King's Speech. King George VI had a stutter. And some people reckon the reason King George had a stutter or developed a stutter when he was a child was because when he was a child, he was left-handed and they forced him to write with his right hand. And some people have made the connection between, between that, that children who were forced to write with their right hand maybe went on to develop, uh, develop a stammer. Now, left-handers get a bit of a, a, bit of a hard time of it, you know. I've, let me give you a few, a few ideas of, of some, some words. For example, the French word for left is gauche, G-A-U-C-H-E. Now, if we transfer that word over into English, we actually use it in English, don't we? And if we say that someone is gauche, we mean that they're awkward further back linguistically the Latin word for left is sinister which gives us the word sinister. The Latin word for right is dexter which gives us the word dexterity. You see there's even linguistically there, there are these these ideas that are all tied all tied up with this and some of you who are left-handed I mean, you know what it is if you have to ever use a fountain pen. I don't know how you use a fountain pen if you're left-handed, because, you know, you're going to be working your way across. You're going to be smudging everything. Or scissors, and unless you can find a pair of left-handed scissors. Um, there aren't left-handed teacups. So oh, I'm kidding. Uh, they're, they're, but but it's, the world seems to be tilted against the left-handers. Ehud was left-handed. Now, that's going to become very significant, and we'll see that just in a moment. Because notice this third thing about him. He was a master of trickery, or the, uh, he was a, a master of trickery. There's a lot of trickery in this, in this story. You may even read it and say, ooh, is it trickery or is it actually deceit? There's a concealed dagger. He conceals his dagger, this two-edged sword thing, 18 inches long. He conceals it on his right thigh. Now that's actually going to be quite significant because most people were right handed so they would have concealed a dagger on their left thigh. So he turns up to bring tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. If there was anybody doing a little search or wondering was he carrying a weapon, they're going to look at his left, they're not going to look at the right. But because he's left-handed, it's on the right, because he's going to use his left hand. So there's a concealed dagger. He's got this concealed mission. He's turning up. Well, I'm just bringing tribute to the king. Yeah. But then he goes back on another mission, and then he says to him, "Oh, King Eglon, I, I have, I have something from the Lord for you. I've got a secret message from the Lord for you." Now tricky thing there is that the Hebrew word that's used in Judges uh, that's translated message or word, sometimes you can just translate it thing. So, it's a bit ambiguous. So, Eglon presumably thinks, oh, he's got, a, he's got a message from God for me. Maybe he's, you know, been down to those idols down at Gilgal and he's heard from God and he's come and he's got this message for me. And he gets up trusting But Ehud has trapped him. And he wasn't going to do anything with his right hand. That's the hand that you normally would have expected someone to attack you with. He's not going to do anything with his right hand. But he reaches over with his left hand and takes that concealed dagger and plunges it. And basically empties out the guts of this very obese king. The doors are locked. It's just the two of them in the room. Ehud has time to get out, and all of Eglon's attendants are thinking, ooh, I wonder what's going on there. He's, he's at the bathroom. We'll leave him a bit. And uh, eventually when he goes in, there he is lying dead. It's a bit of a more complicated story than the story of Othniel, isn't it? A uh, story of Othniel where You know, you've got this knight in shining armor, the right pedigree, God raised him up, spirit was at work, you know, everything's, everything's nice and clean and not complicated. And you come to the story of Ehud and Eglon and it's a pretty messy story. It certainly is a pretty messy story. There was a lot of mess that needed to be cleaned up by the time these guys found their king in there. What are we to make of him though? God raised him up. But does that mean that everything he did was right and noble? What do we make of the trickery or deceit? You know, sometimes people might justify being manipulative. You know, somebody might say, you know, one man's manipulation is another man's leadership. People might want to justify that. This trickery that's there, does that mean that, well, It's okay for us to say we're doing evangelism or something like that. It's okay for us to use a little bit of trickery because, you know, we're working towards a good end. I remember a few years ago getting invited to speak. It was a church, and I'm sure loads of churches do this kind of thing, but I got invited by a church to speak at a, it was a curry night. There was rugby on. It was the Six Nations in Ireland were playing somebody or other, France or somebody, and so the thing was built, you know, come along, watch a bit of rugby, have a nice curry, the real reason they wanted to get you there was because they'd invited me to come along and preach at you. Now, I'm not saying that they were being deceitful, but it's a little bit of a bait and switch about it. Is it okay to do that? You know, is that what, what, what uh, Ehud was doing, like bait and switch? You know, hey, I've got a message from God for you, <laughs> but it's a funny kind of message. <whistles> Boom, you know, and in it, and it, and goes, goes the dagger. Uh, what, what do we make of that? And we probably have to realize that God is just using some very unusual people. It's not that he's necessarily condoning everything that Ehud does, but he's using this very imperfect person. It'd be so much easier, wouldn't it, if all the stories were like the story of Othniel, the man that God uses, but it's not. It's not like that. He uses a left-handed man. There's an element of surprise about that, isn't there? Certainly Eglon got a bit of a surprise. It was a bit late before he, you know, by the time he realized what was happening, it was a bit of a surprise, a bit unexpected. And this is one of the things I want us to take away from this is this idea that God, God uses sometimes surprising and unexpected ways of getting his work done. I think about the story of Moses, for example. And Moses is born at a time when Pharaoh wants to, to keep the the Hebrews uh, oppressed, and he thinks, do you know what? We're going to we're going to oppress the Hebrews, and we're going to keep them down by killing the baby boys. And it's a horrible time. And Pharaoh is saying, do you know if I'm gonna if I'm gonna deal with the Hebrews, the answer is going to be dealing with the males, the male children, I'll deal with them and that's fine. So what happens? Well, you get midwives who defy him. You get the mother of Moses who defies him. You get his own daughter who actually looks after one of these little Hebrew boys, Moses. You get Moses' sister who protects by, by coming up with this really smart idea, I'll find a nurse for you, his own mother. You know, and, and so you've got, the, you've got all these women, and they're the ones who are undermining Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks, if I can sort out the men, I'm going, to sort out the, I'm, going to, I'm going to solve my problem with the Hebrews. And it's the women who undermine him. You see God using surprising things, surprising ways. You think about the gospel and what Paul says about the message of the cross in 1 Corinthians. How's God going to demonstrate his power? How's, how's God going to demonstrate his power? Well, Paul says he demonstrates it through the weakness of the cross. Jesus been crucified. God dying on a cross. The weakness of God is actually the power of God. How's God going to demonstrate his wisdom? He's going to demonstrate it says Paul through the foolishness of the cross these surprising ways. And as we think, as you and I think, and as I I wrap this up, as you and I think about it, who's God going to use? How's God going to work? We need to realize that sometimes God is really going to use unexpected things. He's going to use an element of surprise, something that no one was expecting. He's going to use that And I think that should make us cautious. We need to be careful we don't get carried away worshiping so-called Christian celebrities and trying to be like so-called Christian celebrities. But it also should encourage us, shouldn't it? Because some of us think, you know, I'm not really like Othniel. I don't have a great pedigree. You know, I'm not a remarkable person. I'm not a knight on shining armor. Could God ever use me? Well, you know, God delights in using the unexpected. God delights in surprises, in working in surprising ways. Like through the left-handedness of this man. Take something that was regarded in the ancient world as weak. That's what I'm going to use. And he uses it to deal with that enemy. And maybe you or I, we've got something about us and we think, well, this is, I'm just weak, you know. I, I, this is something that's only going to hinder me from, from serving God. And God might say, you know, the very thing that, that you think disqualifies you and makes you weak and brings you to a place where you think I could never use you, that may be the very thing that I want to use. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. Um, we thank you, Lord, even for the, the earthiness of it, that you come and you get involved even in these situations that are confusing, um, situations that are surprising. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have demonstrated your power through weakness and you've demonstrated your wisdom through apparent foolishness. Lord, would you encourage us just to whatever, however we might assess ourselves, encourage us, Lord, that we would be available for you to use us in whatever way you want. We pray in Jesus' name.